we are in our series entitled Unfinished, and we're going to be uh, going through a lot of sections today, so I would encourage you to uh, buckle up and uh, take your sip of coffee, because we're going to be going through this rather quickly, because there's a lot that's here. Now, before we really delve into this text, I'd like to ask you a question. What is the best sermon you've ever heard in your life? Which one of my sermons was the best sermon... Oh, wait, no. What was the best sermon that you ever heard? Now, I had, I had a sermon that uh, I remember hearing when I was in, in college at Moody from a pastor named E.V. Hill. And he, he did this message called, When Was God at His Best? And it's the only sermon that I've ever stopped in the middle of it to applaud. I was just so overcome and so touched as the Spirit of God was working through him. It was awesome. Uh, now, what was that sermon for you? That you can just point to and say, wow, God really spoke that day. Then I look over history and I see some amazing messages that were spoken. Probably one of the greatest sermons ever spoken in American history was on July 8th, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. Through a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was probably uh, or is undoubtedly the greatest theologian in American history. Uh, but if you would know about him, he was in a church, and it was a very traditional church, and, and he is reading his manuscript word for word without any type of inflection or change. And you think, well, that's not a good sermon to hear, but it was so amazing that, that people started crying out because they thought they were going to be sliding into hell. People were grabbing onto the pillars of the church because they were so fearful at what God was doing. The Spirit of God came upon that place in such a dramatic way, and it overflowed out of the windows of that place into the greater community, and people were being revived and turning to Jesus in an awesome way, and it began what became known in American history as the Great Awakening, as almost all of New England turned to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a phenomenal message. And I wish I could go back just to watch that. And I wish I could go back to watch this message. I mean, this is an amazing message. It says that 3,000 people, 3,000 people responded to it. Now, I've spoken to some big audiences before. The biggest audience I've ever spoken to is 1,600 people. And I had amplification. I can't imagine how Peter spoke to a group, and this is 3,000 people that responded. It had to have been even bigger. And without amplification, and again, not any precedent before him on how to deliver a sermon like this. And in many ways, a questioning crowd, but also members of a hostile crowd that had crucified his own Savior. And he had been very afraid of. And then he's standing in front of these people proclaiming who Jesus is. Now there are some times when a, a movement of God happens so much, we have to stop and ask ourselves, what does it mean? There are some events that we go through in our life that are so traumatic that cause us to go, what's going to be different now? I think of September 11th, after the second plane hit the tower. I remember just looking around going, what's, what does this mean? What, what, what's happening? What does this mean for us now as a country? What does this mean for us as a nation? And we didn't understand. And in many ways, this event was like that, except as that event was tragic, this, this, this event was phenomenal. And it was so unbelievable that people came out of the woodwork. And let me just set the stage for you if you weren't here with us last week. But we saw after Jesus had died, he had risen from the dead three days later. He had been with his disciples and interacted and appeared several different times over a 40-day period. At the end of that period, he ascended into heaven and he told them that he had to ascend because if he didn't leave them, that the Spirit of God would not come upon them. So he leaves and tells them to wait, and they wait 10 days, and they're together in one place, and there's 120 of them. And then the Spirit of God comes like a rushing wind, and like tongues of fire come upon them, and they began to speak in other tongues. 
And it was such an uproar. I mean, imagine 120 people speaking at one time in a very close community. And people outside are going to hear. I mean, if you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever been to a place like this, but in the Middle East, especially in Jerusalem, the streets, I mean, you're looking out the window, you're looking at the streets. It wasn't far off, wasn't far away. It's right in the middle of everything. And they hear these voices, and people are hearing their own languages. And there are several that are here. You speak several different languages and different tongues. And imagine to hear someone speaking your tongue so clearly, and they're a different, they're a different tribe, they're a different ethnicity, and you're wondering, what does it mean? What does it mean? And that's where it says Peter stood up to get the attention of this group because there were some people that were amazed, there were some people that were just mystified, and there were some that were mocking And Peter heard the words, and they said, these people are drunk. So Peter stands up, and like any good pastor, he begins with a joke. (laughs) And he starts off, and he says, men, they're not drunk, it's only 9 a.m. And then he transitions. They're like, okay, you know, they're, they're kind of laughing to themselves, still wondering what this means. And then Peter begins to describe something so amazing, so transforming, that it made everybody to be cut to the heart. And really, this message, as we're going to see, is really the the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of something that's incredible, something that had not been seen before, something that was going to transform the hearts and minds of people all over the world and all across time, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every background. And that's the truth that we're going to read about today. We're going to see how it can transform your life and how it transforms mine as well. And how we can still to this day and be cut to the heart from his message spoken some 2,000 years ago. And let's take a moment, though, before we go any further, to stop and pray and ask God by his Holy Spirit to bless this time together. That he might open the word of God to our hearts, that we might go forth changed and transformed. Let's take a moment to pray. O Lord, our God, we enter into your presence by the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Lord, we have been purchased and bought by his blood, and your word says that we are the living temples in whom your spirit dwells. And Lord, today we ask you to fill us. We ask you to fill not just us as people, but fill this place. Lord, remind us that you are the holy God. Lord, help us not to just go through the motions, but to see you high and lifted up and reminding ourselves that there are angels in this place watching us amazed that we could be beneficiaries of such a wonderful and so great a salvation. And they are seeing and watching, seeing if we are living according to the authority of your word. And Lord, our God, we pray that your word might go forth performing a spiritual surgery, removing the cancer of unbelief that's in our souls, drawing us near to you that we might be shaped shaped and changed by the truth that you have laid forth for us. Be with us, bless us, and speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's jump right in to this text, shall we? And actually just really start going and seeing what God has for us. First of all, we already looked and saw what had occurred. The Spirit of God had poured out. Now Peter stands up with the eleven, and he lifts his voice in verse 14. And he addressed them. And he says, men of Judea, remember this is a Jewish crowd. They had been brought together. They're observing Pentecost together. They had returned from the diaspora. They all spoke different languages, but they were coming together. And they were wondering what this all meant. 
And then Peter says, they're not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered to the prophet Joel. And he says, and in the last days it shall be God declares. Now, he says, he's using this description from Joel to describe what God is doing. That's the first point that I want you to write down. Through Peter's message, we can see what God is doing in the hearts and minds of different people, specifically this people in Judea. Now, he shows what God is doing, and he says in verse 17, and in the last days it shall be. Now, in the last few weeks, I've had several different conversations about the end times with several different well-meaning believers. And some have said, well, you know, I'm, I firmly believe we're in the end times now. I, I really think we're in the end times. And, and they cite the different stuff that's seen in the news. I don't know if you saw this recently with September 23rd was to be the end of the world, right? And then what happened? September 23rd came, and the guy goes, I was wrong. It's in October. <laughs> right? This is just one in a line of several over time. We can go back. Look at 2012. You had the Mayan prophecy, right? 2011, Harold Camping, the end of the world. And that he changed from May 21st, after that came and went, to October. He changed it again. Do you know he tried to predict the end of the world 12 different times? What amazed me is how many people followed him. And there's several before that. I remember the book in 1988, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. Or Y2K, how about that one? Some of you remember all of these different things. And there's so many, every generation, there are so many different people that try to predict the end of time. And it can lead to some very disastrous results. One of the greatest disasters is what was known as the Great Disappointment. It happened in 1843 when a Baptist pastor by the name of William Miller had believed that he found the secret code to interpret when Jesus is coming back. And it's always a secret code, by the way. A secret code that only they can find out anything about and when Jesus is returning. And he gathered a group of followers and they came and became a church and that permeated into other churches and they all believed that Jesus was going to come back in 1843. But he's a smart guy. He said, I can't figure out the exact day, but it's between 18 May and it's between, or March and May of 1843. He gave himself a little bit of time. And then what happened? Came and went, nothing happened. And he goes, oh, I was wrong. It was 1844. And then everybody gathered out in a field, the appointed day. They're looking to the sky, praying, asking, God, you're coming back. The day came and went. Some stayed out in the field for a couple days, pleading and saying, God, when are you coming back? As a matter of fact, they became a laughingstock in their community. And some people, actually, who had been hearing them over and over and over, responded by tarring and feathering those followers. Some showing up at the churches, vandalizing them, taking clubs and knives to threaten them. They were so tired of hearing all of this stuff. But the followers, I mean, he finally repented and said, I was wrong. But one of his followers said, no, he, she was right. But Jesus came back spiritually. And they founded a church, and it's a denomination that actually exists to this day known as the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay? So these are groups that are arisen up, and they think that, you know, they try to calculate. And the Bible says that we're not to calculate these things. We're not. No one knows the day or the hour. You can't figure it out. You're not going to have some divine insight that saints before you who were well-meaning and just as zealous did not receive. We're to simply trust in what God has done. Now, when I hear people say, I believe we're in their last days, they're saying that somehow in the last 15 to 20 or even 50 years, we've now entered the last days. But Peter here says, in the last days, God will pour out. He's saying that this is the kickoff for the last days. 
So let me tell you, we've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. Now, that is a struggle for many of us because we look at time with blinders on in our own period of time. And we look back at our generation and we go, those were the good old days, and man, it's gotten so bad since then. And then we think that's the, that because it's gotten so bad now, it's the last days. But if you go into other cultures and you see that there are some good things that have actually occurred in our own time, and it hasn't gotten worse for many people, like treatment of women, of medicine, access to different things. But in other cultures, they've had struggles for a long period of time. We just had such a good time for, in this culture for a certain period, and only a certain amount of people. And the reality is, is when we look at time in a greater capacity, we see that that time is much bigger than we originally imagined, and that when, when Christ comes, that is the kickoff for the end of time. So we're in the last days, but it's an indefinite period of time where we don't know how long it's going to be. So he's saying here, what Peter is telling us is, I want to talk, to be, talk and tell you about what God is doing. And in other words, he's saying God has ino- is inaugurating or inaugurates the last days, that we are in that now. That's a little letter A in your notes. But he has inaugurated or kicked off the last days. And inaugurate means to mark the beginning of, or to begin or introduce. So he has inaugurated the last days. So we see that. He's inaugurated the last days. And we can see that in verse, as we see that in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams, or shall dream dreams. So, if you, are, if you want to know if you're an old man or a young man, here's the great delineation. If you have dreams, you're an old man. If you have visions, you're a young man. I kind of say that tongue-in-cheek, but no one laughed. But he says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, in order to understand the full flavor of what this passage is saying, we have to understand the Jewish mindset. See, the book of, or the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. And after Malachi, before the New Testament, or between Christ's coming, it was known as the 400 years of silence, where people believed that God had withdrawn his spirit from men. And so now the spirit of God has shown up in a pretty powerful way. And not, he just wasn't dwelling within Jewish people or Jewish men. He's, he's with men, women, old, young, poor, wealthy. It's, not, it's, it's irregardless of your status. So he's saying then, he has not only inaugurated the last days, but he's coming to indwell his people. God is, gonna, God is living. If you trust in Jesus, God is living in you. That is absolutely remarkable. That's phenomenal to even begin to understand, especially when we understand that Jews thought of of the Spirit of God dwelling in the temple of God. And now he is indwelling within his people, and he's made you a temple that he is residing in, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And he's indwelling his people, which is absolutely phenomenal. Now, we see here how he's indwelling his people. In the last days it shall be, God declares... I will pour out my spirit in all flesh, and your sons and your daughters, and that's what's happening in this 120. Men and women are there, servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, extol the wonders of God and what's going to happen. Now, the next part of the text, though, is a little bit wonky. Things can get a little crazy in here in verse 18. 
and it says here, even on my, actually verse 19, and I will show, my, show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And people talk about all the blood moon uh, stuff that's going on before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, before I really digest and break this apart and what this means, I want to give you some pointers on prophecy. Okay, the Bible does talk a great deal about prophecy. But prophecy is not just a singular understanding of something. Prophecy has many different parts to it. And there are several different aspects to prophecy. First of all, there's direct and indirect prophecies. A direct prophecy is like Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Okay? An indirect prophecy is actually in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. In the context, it's that Israel would be called out, but they're applying it to Jesus. So this is an indirect prophecy. So we see those are two kinds of parameters, but there's actually more parameters that are there with it. There are prophecies that are filled with figures and symbols that have literal fulfillments. Like, for example, and, uh, they, in, um, when the, the serpent had bit all the Israelites and they run out with the staff, the bronze serpent, and everyone who looked to the serpent would be saved, and Jesus equates that to himself. When I am high and lifted up, I will save. Those who look to me will be saved. And he is a fulfillment of that. It's a, 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 an indirect um, or a figurative. It's seen figuratively, then it's fulfilled literally. And we also have to remember with prophecy, almost every prophecy, when fulfilled, is almost always fulfilled in a way that no one expected. It's always fulfilled in a way that no one expected. So let me tell you this. Let me save you a lot of time and heartache and family arguments. You will not know when Jesus is coming back. You can't figure it out. Don't try. I can't, I can't believe how many people that I hear still try to do this. You can get all the end time charts you want to. And then use them for kindling in your fire pit. Because they're not going to matter. Stop doing that. Because no one is, everyone in throughout history was surprised at how the prophecy was fulfilled. And there are some prophecies actually with multiple fulfillments. Others with partial and progressive fulfillments that are seen over time. I don't have time to give you examples of all these. And there are still others that we only recognize a pixel of the picture that God has given. And we can't grasp its fullness. But one thing is for sure, prophecy is beneficial to the church because it reminds us that God is in charge from beginning to end and things will happen in the way that he has said. Now, all that being said, I want us to look at the passage, verse 18 through 21. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of snow, smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this, this wording here in verse 19 and 20 could either be literal, that it's referring to the blood will actually, the moon will actually turn to blood, or it could be figurative. Now, when we understand the scripture, we have this tendency to approach scripture as just scripture. Like we, we, we interpret it all the same way. But we forget that scripture is actually a compilation of several different genres. That's that word you learned in high school English class. For those that are non-English speakers, it means many different types of literature. Okay? And the Bible is filled with different types of literature. You have what's called historical narrative. Okay? Historical narrative, it's a description of what happened. Acts is part of a historical narrative. So are the, the Gospels. You have what we call doctrinal or doctrinal. The letters of Paul are doctrines that are teaching us how to do different things. You have wisdom literature, such as Proverbs or poems, such as the Psalms. 
Song of Solomon. These are all different types of that. And then you have what we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic is referring to the apocalypse, the end of time, and it's literature that is talking about what's going to happen at the end of time. Daniel in the Old Testament, Revelation in the New Testament are all examples of apocalyptic literature. And many of the prophets, there's prophetic literature too, Isaiah, Jeremiah. These are all talking about what's going to happen, some in their near contexts, some in the far context. Now, as I share all that with you, I want us to have that in our minds as we try to understand what this means. And we can see, and actually scholars are divided, if it's figurative or if it's literal. But let me tell you, the point is not for either one of those. It's actually in the next part where the real point comes in, where he says, This will happen before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. The day of the Lord is this day that was foretold within the Old Testament. The Old Testament testifies to it, which uh, had some days that acted as precursors or previews to the one specific day where God would inflict his wrath on unbelieving humanity. The New Testament testifies that it's a day when God will visit the earth as never before, pouring out his wrath on the unbelieving world. It will come quickly like a thief in the night, and we must be watchful and ready for it at any moment. And the point of this passage is, is that Peter is informing us of God's coming judgment. He is informing us of God's approaching judgment, that judgment is coming. This is the inauguration. This is the kickoff for the last days. And God's judgment is coming, and you have a window of opportunity to respond in the here and now to what God has done in and through Christ. That's your window. And he's informing, he's saying that this, this is happening before this day of the Lord comes. Now, when we look at prophecy, sometimes there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And here, let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up to read from the scroll of Isaiah publicly in a synagogue. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news, to heal the afflicted, the sick, the blind, to release those who have been held captive. And he finishes it, stops, rolls up the scroll, puts it back and sits down. And he says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. And people freak out because he's basically claiming that he's Messiah. But what's fascinating is where he broke off in his reading. It says to, you know, declare the captives free, but then he stops. And it's actually stopped in mid-sentence. And the next part is, and to inflict a day of vengeance of our God. And he's saying there, this prophecy has two parts. This is the part that's being fulfilled right now. This is the part fulfilled later. So the spirit being poured out is the part that's being fulfilled in this context. And that there's going to come something later before the, the day of the Lord will come. So he, we're seeing that he's saying and informing them that God is approaching, uh, his judgment is approaching. And he is inviting all to believe while there is still time. He's inviting all to believe while there is still time. Look at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's saying that there is an opportunity here. You've got to call on the name of the Lord before that awful day comes. There's an opportunity to believe, and we need to get right with God before that awful day comes. Now, then he begins to elaborate or extrapolate who the name of the Lord is. And he explains that. And so first he talks about what God is doing, and now he's talking about what God has done. This is what God has done for you. And he has provided a Savior. He begins to elaborate on who Jesus is. God has provided a Savior for you. 
That's the amazing thing. Jesus came to earth. He's the only one qualified. Look at verse 23 through 24. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He provided a savior. He's the only one qualified. He's the key to everything here. But how do we know that he's really qualified? And that's what they wanted to know. And so Peter then begins to explain. He says, Jesus was attested to you. The word in Greek means proven. He was proven to you by God with mighty works. Jesus is seen in the proof of his miracles. He's seen in the proof of his miracles, what he did. You know, if you would look back over history, no one has done the miracles that Jesus did. Some of the greatest stories, like the man born blind. He was born blind, and he healed him. I, I love specifically the story of blind Bartimaeus. It's one of my favorite, favorite passages in all of Scripture. If you know the story, it's Bartimaeus is sitting by the roadside with his friend, and he's sitting between old Jericho and new Jericho. And Jesus and his entourage pass by. And he, he hears them, and he goes, what's going on? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And I love, he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And I I heard this, by the way, the first time I ever heard this passage preached. I was at this little church. There were maybe 15 to 20 people there in southern Indiana, my first year of college. And the man delivering the sermon had cerebral palsy. And he was saying, son of David. He was just, that's how he was. And I sat there and I'm like, it's as if he himself was the one calling on Jesus at that moment in time. Son of David, have mercy on me. And you know what it says next? People tried to shut him up. They tried to shut him up. Stop it. Come on, you're causing this scene. Just chill. Come on. And I love what it says in the text. He gets louder. Son of David! See, what I love about Jesus, he's not just a theological savior. He's a personal savior. He's a savior that appeals to you in your life. He cares about what you're in. He cared about his blindness. He cares about your struggles, your sins. He cares about your family. He cares about your job, your marriage, your children. He cares for you. He's not the God who's afar off. He's the God that's intimately near and cares about your hopes, your dreams, everything you're about. He comes near. And I love what happens. It says that Jesus stopped and called him there. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine that? The God of the universe, the creator of everything that was, is, and ever will be, is saying, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want my sight. And he lays hands on him and gives him his sight. That's incredible. And, he's, and, it, and he has miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. If you go back and look through the historical record, there's nobody that did miracles like him. And this isn't some... some uh, you know, smoke and mirrors miracles, like some of the stuff we see on TV today. You see some people on TV today, and they healed somebody, and they're really not healed. They weren't that sick to begin with. And they do it to get people to give more money. But this is a verified miracle. And not just one, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And he's still reaching out into people's lives, and he's still transforming people. And he says, I'll prove myself. I'll show myself to be the Savior. 
So it's not just the proof of his miracles. And they had testified to it. They'd seen it. And they're, they're listening to Peter going, uh-huh, they're nudging at their buddy. Yeah, you remember our buddy was paralyzed? Yeah, he healed him. Mm-hmm. Testify. That's what they're doing. And he's attesting you by signs and miracles, not just the proof of his miracles, but by the plan of God. See, I, I remember I was in Egypt in 2006, and I was in a, uh, on the Nile in this boat, and I was interacting with this man, and we were talking about the, the creation, we're talking about the cross, and he said something that I made my jaw drop to the floor. He said, really, the cross was God making up for a mistake in the garden, as if God was scrambling. After Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, and he went, oh no, what do I got to do now? Uh, let's see, how about, a, how about you assume flesh, Jesus, and go and save humanity? That sounds good. How about we do that? It wasn't like that at all. Matter of fact, we read that it was the definite plan of God, that it was foreordained, that this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter actually says this later on in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. He says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, last times, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It was the plan of God. We can see that by the plan of God. It was foreordained, foretold of a suffering Messiah. And we really see that in the prophecies he fulfilled. It's another proof that he is the Savior that God provided. Peter quotes from Psalm 16, 8 through 11, Psalm 10, 110, 1, and tells us that Jesus has fulfilled them in his resurrection. In fact, there are dozens of these Old Testament prophecies that created a fingerprint that the only true Messiah could fit. This gave Israel a way to rule out imposters and validate the credentials of the authentic Messiah. Against astronomical odds. Here's the odds, by the way, of one person fulfilling all this. One mathematician put it this way. It's one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. Jesus, and only Jesus throughout history, matched this prophetic fingerprint. This confirms Jesus' identity to an incredible degree of certainty. But if you didn't that, you don't believe in prophecy, you got to deal with the proof of his resurrection. That's the next point. The proof of his resurrection, that's what he's testifying, that God raised him up. And he goes, we're witnesses to this. Check it out. John had fish with him. John, tell him about how you ate the fish with Jesus. Thomas, show him your finger. He put his finger in him. Seriously. And he's testifying. These are the witnesses. They're testifying. We saw him. He was there. We were there. We ate with him. We saw him. It was incredible. He looked great. <laughs> I mean, imagine this. These are going to remember these are real people. And it's phenomenal. And it's the power of his resurrection. And that's what they're saying. He's saying, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you as yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, he does not play around, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. It's the resurrection, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for them to be held by it. Why? Because he had no sin. 
See, sin, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't have sin. He did become sin to experience death. But because he had no sin, death could not hold him. And he died. And it says, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. King David, he's prophesying, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, to the abode of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter goes, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. He's here. We got his tomb over there. See, down the street, that's David's tomb. Jesus, there's no tomb. He's not there. He's resurrected. He is risen again from the dead. It's the power of his resurrection. But not only that, that's not the only proof. It says, verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. Show him your finger again, Peter. I mean, Thomas. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from God there the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, God the Father said to Jesus, Set up my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is phenomenal. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Let me tell you this. Jesus' last name is not Christ. It's not his name. It's the title that's given to him. It means anointed one. It's, it's the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah, that he is the Messiah. He is the kurios, the Lord of all. And his, he has proven that, and he is now, after he went into the heavens, the whole, Holy Spirit was poured out, and he is sitting at the right hand of God, which indicates his work is finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it was finished. That you no longer have to try to work your way to God. You will never ever be able to overcome that guilt and that shame on your own. You'll never be able to do and be good enough. He was good enough and he alone was good enough. He's, it's his goodness. He gives you his righteousness to trust in what he has already done. We see that through the power of his resurrection and the position that he is now in. That's the amazing thing. He's in a position, sitting at the right hand of God. It's a position of strength. The right hand in Scripture is always a position of strength. And he's sitting, which indicates that his work is finished, and he's waiting for the day. And again, this is his second coming, when his enemies will be made the footstool for his feet. When I was in Egypt, I got to go to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, and I got to see all of King Tutankhamun's, everything that was in his burial chamber that was discovered. One of the phenomenal pieces there was his summer furniture. He had summer furniture. I think Egypt's always in summer, but he had summer furniture. What was fascinating is he actually had a little ottoman they put his feet on. On it had all these different figures. They were all of his enemies. That's what it symbolized. He's saying that I have defeated you. And he's saying that till my enemies are made at his, his feet. That's what he's saying there. And he's in a position now. That he rules and reigns. His reign has been inaugurated, but it's not been consummated until he comes back. And the gates of hell will not prevail against his church until then. Meaning that we can go forth, and the gates of hell, they're shaken. Because God's people's coming in. See, we've been too busy retreating and going into bunkers at the culture wars that are going on around us. When he's saying, march boldly in the spirit of God and be bold for the testimony of God, because I'm going to accomplish my purpose in this generation with the power of my spirit, and ain't nothing the devil can do to stop it. That's what he's saying, this position that he is now in. 
and by the Spirit who's poured out. That's another sign of it. That's where he's saying, be therefore exalted at the right hand of God, verse 33, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that had been foretold, that Jesus had promised about, the Spirit that would be with you and then would be in you, he has poured out. And this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Look, everybody, look what God has done. Look, 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 hear him. Look, see it? He's speaking to Swahili over there. He's speaking to Mandarin over there. Pigeon over there. That's God. That's a sign that his spirit is being poured out. Position he's now in and the spirit that he has poured out. The spirit was the beginning of the end that is coming. Now Peter wants to bring his point home. And these people are cut to the heart. It says, I love this in the text. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Verse 37, they're convicted. And they say, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So we've talked about what God has been doing. We've talked about what God has done. Now we're going to see what we're supposed to do now. What do we do with this? What does God have this? What does this mean for us? What are we to do? What does Peter respond with? He says, I mean, they're convicted. They understood that they were responsible. Now, we have to understand that about ourselves, too. Though we may not have been present, though we may not have driven the nail into his hands, spiritually we did crucify the Lord of glory by our disobedience and turning our backs on him. And we are as culpable by our actions. And we have to repent as well. And Peter said to them, repent. Let's start there. Let's repent of our sin. Repentance is not a fun word today. It's one that people leave out because they don't want to offend people. Um, what is repentance? You know, the Greek word here used for repentance refers to the change of one's mind for the better, heartily to amend with abhorrence of one's past sins and have conduct worthy of a changed heart and abhorring sin. Let me repeat that. And I'll, let me just actually put it this way. Your heart is changed. You turn from your sin. You live for God. That's what repentance is. C.S. Lewis described it as what going back to God looks like. Repentance is what going back to God looks like. Turning away from your sin, turning to God. Now, there are some of you here today who think that you have Jesus, but you're holding on to your sin, and you've been holding on to it for years. Why do you think that you are saved if you are willing, if you're unwilling to give up the very thing that Jesus died to save you from? Why do you think you're saved if you're unwilling to give up the very thing that Jesus does died to save you from? Why do you hold on to it if you say that you love him? It can't be done. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You can't hold on to sin and your Savior. You have to repent of it. You have to turn away. You can't stay in the situation that you're in. You have to turn. That's God's condition. Repent. I don't care if you're, you've been a pastor, you've been a deacon, you're a Bible student. I don't care who you are. Judas walked with Jesus for crying out loud. Repent of our sin. And then what do you do? He says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He gives us a command to be baptized. It's in the imperative mood. It means that we are required to respond in obedience. 
It's the fullest picture of one's identification with Jesus. Just as Jesus died, was buried in the tomb, so we who are buried with him in baptism go into the waters, and us coming out of the water is a symbol of him coming out of the tomb, and it's a, a picture of identifying with him and what he, has, what he has done. Now, just a word of caution here. When I first became a Christian, I got caught up with a group of people that this was their go-to verse. And they said that if I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not baptized in Jesus' name only, then I wasn't saved. Now, the problem with that is, I mean, they looked at this text and it says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. But yet, it seems to be a contradiction to Matthew chapter 28, which says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, which is true. We have to understand something. When you, uh, what baptism really means, means identification with. That's what it means. So when, be, let's, for an example, let's talk about Jesus' baptism for a minute. Jesus, when he was baptized, he came to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, Whoa, it is I who need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to be baptized by me. And Jesus says, Let it be so to fulfill all righteousness. Now what was Jesus saying? He's saying that even though I have no sin, I am identifying with those who do have sin. I'm identifying with them, taking my place with sinful men. And that's when John, it says, relented and baptized him. So when we are baptized in Jesus' name, we're saying that uh, we are baptized or identifying with Jesus' finished work on the cross. It's not in the formula. It's like as if it were some magical incantation that if we don't do it right, then we don't get saved, which is what this group said it was, that if I didn't be baptized in Jesus' name, I had to be baptized in a different baptism, and then I had to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and if I didn't do that, then I'm, I'm not really saved. No, that's making it into a magic formula. When it says to be baptized in Jesus' name, it's saying to be baptized in identification with his finished work and what he has done in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I'm identifying with Jesus. I'm following Jesus' command, but I'm identifying with him in baptism. And the point is, is that we are to be baptized. And this modern notion of, I'm going to get saved, and then I'm going to be baptized later, is not in Scripture at all. It was, re, it was believe and baptism were almost synonymous and uh, instantaneous with one another. And I, I've met some Christians who are like, I want to partake of communion, but I don't want to be baptized. And we have that at our church. We recommend that you be baptized before you partake of communion, which has been the position throughout most of church history. And see, people are like, oh, I cannot believe that people said I need to be baptized, and, um, and I want to partake of communion. Let me ask you a question. Why do you want to be obedient in this area and disobedient in this one? It's like saying this. Baptism is like the marriage ceremony where I'm showing that I'm united with Jesus, and communion is the intimacy. Why do you want to be intimate without the commitment? That's what it is, historically. And I see people all the time. You don't understand. You, why are you willing to be disobedient here and you don't want to be obedient here? He's saying that I want to show and declare my faith in Jesus Christ. We are to be obedient. To obedient. And some people say, well, what if you have to be baptized and then receive the Holy Spirit? He says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So baptism then precedes receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh-uh. In Acts chapter 10, verse 47 through 49, the Spirit of God falls on the Gentiles after they believe in Jesus. And then they look at them. The apostles go, wait a minute. Can we, we can baptize these guys. Should we, why shouldn't we baptize them? They've got the Spirit of God. Because they were Gentiles that came to believe. And God was showing that the Gentiles were part of the greater community of God's people. And then they were baptized after they had already received the Spirit. 
So we have a tendency to want to reverse the order. That's not the case. So what does it mean to be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? You have to remember, these people didn't know who this Holy Spirit was until this moment in time, in, in reality, that it would, he would indwell them. And believing, they were indicating their belief in their baptism, and the Holy Spirit was coming upon them. So it's pretty all right together. So we have to understand that. that this is, remember, the book of Acts, we have prescription and description. Things that were required to do, and things that simply describing what was already done. We have to learn to sift the two of them. But we're to respond in obedience. That's the point. And we are to rely on his spirit. That's why he is talking so much about the spirit of God. As believers today, we are baptized by his spirit the moment we believe. That was just the first instance. After that, we see the spirit of God then coming upon people the moment that they trust in Jesus. We're not to see... um, God works in us and transforms us from the inside out, and we need not seek an external sign to indicate the fact that some are in the habit of doing. But there is a principle here for us that we are to rely on His Spirit. Peter reveals to us the necessity of the Spirit's work in our lives to help us live the lives He desires us to. Now, this is, again, where we've really messed everything up. We really just focus on getting them to pray the prayer of salvation. We don't understand. When it says, I want you to be my witnesses into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, the word for witnesses is the word martyr. And it means giving the entirety of one's life. And we can't do that on our own. And it doesn't just mean in verbal proclamation. It means witnesses in every single thread and aspect of our lives. That's why the gospel talks about husbands love your wives. Wives respect your husbands. Children, you do this. He's saying this is how you follow Jesus in your house. This is how you follow Jesus in your work. This is how you follow and indicate that you are my witnesses to the rest of the world as you interact with different cultures and backgrounds and you go and interact with people that are different than yourself. That you're to be my witnesses and rely on my spirit. And let me tell you this. Can you right now say that you're accomplishing God's, God's purpose for your life without his spirit? If you think you can accomplish God's purpose without his spirit, that's not God's purpose. Because you have to have his spirit to accomplish God's purpose. Because it's a supernatural task that he's called us to. And we need his spirit. We need to be filled with the spirit, doing what he wants us to do. But we're so busy on YouTube that we can't focus and take in what God has for us. We need to repent and turn back and ask God to renew us and bring us back to himself. I want to get back to our text, go through these rather quickly. Look at verse 39 for a moment. For the promise is for you, this is referring to the promise of the Spirit, and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This promise that the Spirit of God has given to us, to have the Spirit, but not just for ourselves, But the Spirit is available to the next generation and the next generation after that and those who are far away in different lands. Remember that they thought God had withdrawn His Spirit and they didn't know if He was going to be with them forever or just going to be for a moment. But He's saying now God is promising to help us and the next generation and we need to relish the opportunity we have that God's Spirit is with us. We need to relish the opportunity that we have that God's Spirit is with us. God is working in our generation now, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against God's church moving forward. We need to pray for our children and pray for those who are far away from God and pray that God would call them to himself. Some of you have children in rebellion. Take advantage of the opportunity that while they are still drawing breath in this age, that they are not beyond the spirit of God's amazing work. God can change them. 
We need to hold on to that promise while there's still time, praying and besieging the throne of grace as we rebel against the world's status quo, bringing and beseeching God to bear in the lives of our loved ones and those who are living in rebellion to him. Remember, prayer is rebellion against the world's status quo. We need to hold on to that promise while there's still time. And lastly, look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. When he says, save yourself from this crooked generation, the idea is is you have to keep on fighting. Run the race that is before us. This is a continual battle. You are in a battle day in and day out. When you walk in, in, when you get up in the morning, Satan tries to sit on your face. Doesn't want you to battle, doesn't want you to pray, wants you to be tired, wants you to stay up late, wants you to get distracted. Doesn't want you to battle on. And we have to understand that the world is coming in every single place. And we have to continually battle to save ourselves from the crooked generation that is around us. And run the race that is before us. Continually pressing on, following Jesus, keeping our eye on him. Keeping our minds renewed through the word of God. As we continue to pray and seek his face. Relying on the spiritual resources and tools that are there for us. Don't get caught up in all the externals. Don't try to live like the world lives. Don't try to Christianize what the world values. Run the race that is before us. And then verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. He continued to bear witness to them and exhort them. The sermon wasn't just what we read here. It had more parts to it. He kept preaching and encouraging them to save themselves from this generation that was crooked and turned its back on God. They were in a battle. And I'd love to have been in that service, by the way, after that sermon and see 3,000 people get baptized. That would have been awesome. People just lining up to be baptized, and I long for that to happen in our day and age. Do you think that can happen in our era? Why not? Sometimes I think, oh, that can't happen, and I look at what we can do. But the problem is, is not what we can do. It's what God can do. What can God do? What does God want to do in and through you? What does he want you to take away from this message? What, does, what do you need to make right? Who do you need to talk to? How do you need to prepare your own heart? What step of obedience do you need to take in your married life, in your finances, in your job? What do you need to do? What is God calling you to do? What change is he calling you to make? Because the time is short. We don't know how long it will be. It could continue on for another 2,000 years, or it could be tomorrow, even before I finish this message. But he will come back. And that we are to be about the task, knowing that he gave, it was the beginning of the end, and that end is coming. And the days have been made longer, for we don't know how long, and we still have opportunity to share, to pray, to battle on. Let's do that together. And let's ask God to equip us. If you're a person that has not received Jesus as Lord and Savior and you've been cut to the heart, then you have to call on the name of the Lord. And whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're a person, though, that is backslidden and you've known that you've turned your heart from God, ask God to renew you and grant you a repentance that leads to life. And if you're a person who's grown cold and you've run from your first love, ask God to return to your first love and renew in you a clean heart to follow him.